We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Um, as I've been saying for a number of months now, if, uh, if you are reading along and are get through the New Testament in a year, you should be in Hebrews. Somewhere around chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, somewhere in there. And if you're not reading through it in a year, I encourage you to <clears throat> just go to Hebrews and read through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Um, going to kind of introduce the thought of Jesus, our great high priest, this morning, but I think we'll probably touch base, touch on it at least one or two more times because there's so much in Hebrews, and even though it was written to the Hebrews, it was written to Jewish believers or those who were Jewish who had professed and confessed faith in Christ. Even though it's written to a particular group of people, there is so much in there that is, is life-giving for each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that as we look into your word this morning, you will open our hearts, open our minds, Father, to receive the truth, the encouragement, the comfort, the exhortation that you have in your word for us. God, we thank you for the truth of your word, that it never, ever changes. And God, that it is beneficial for all of us, for all mankind, for all time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, our great high priest. I'm not going to really develop it a whole lot today, but next couple of weeks we'll probably look at it in comparison to what the high priest under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament before Christ versus Jesus as our new high priest. But suffice it to say that the old high priest, when they would go into the temple, when they would enter into the Holy of Holies, they were always decked out in this clothing that God had given explicit directions for them to use. And it was kind of ornate. There was all kinds of things, everything from the tassels on the bottom of their robes to the breastplate they wore. All these things had significance and meaning and symbolism. When you look at Jesus as our high priest, really there's absolutely nothing that was pretty about that. He became our high priest for, through what he did on the cross. He became our high priest by being the ultimate sacrifice. Those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the high priest was a man. He was from the, the priesthood. He, he was selected for a season. First thing he had to do before he could ever go in and make sacrifice for the nation was he had to go in and make sacrifice for himself because he was a man and he was a sinful man. We have a high priest who's totally different. He never, ever sinned. And we're going to look at a little bit of that this morning in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And you need to remember, I think, it helps you to understand some things as you're reading through the book of Hebrews, to remember who it's written to. Whoever the writer is, and there's lots of discussion about who it is, and they're not even totally sure when it was written. The evidence would seem to be for sure before A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed again. So it's somewhere before A.D. 70. And it's written to the Jews. And if you go through, as you read through this, you need to remember the Jewish believers had come out of a sacrificial, sacrificial religious system that had been in place for hundreds of years. And you can imagine this religious system, what they had done, all of the, all of the liturgical type things that they had to do. All of the sacrifices and everything had to follow the explicit instructions of, that the Lord had given them. And they would go through this, but it, it had to be repeated over and over and over and over. It never removed. The, animal, the blood of animals never dealt with the problem of sin completely. 
Jesus, our new high priest, his blood did. So we remember that, and, and you're going to see that whoever the writer of this book is, he, it's like he's reminding them and trying to encourage them, exhort them to realize who he really was and that their faith in Jesus Christ was a confident faith that they could hold on to. Because if you can imagine living in that Jewish culture, the pressure there would have been on those Jewish people who became Christians, who turned their back, so to speak, on the religious system of the day. Now, I know a large number of us in here may never have been churched, but a large number of us came from other churches, came from other types of religious systems. And some of us, when we left that religious system, we got a little bit of flack from family and friends. There was a little bit of pressure put on you, challenging us, challenging, over questioning, wondering all the why. I can't imagine how much more magnified it would have been for the Jewish people where it was such a rigid religious system. And this is what they're facing, and the writer is telling them, whatever you do not, whatever you do, do not renounce or go back from the profession or confession of faith in Jesus Christ that you've made. In other words, prove that it was real. You've made a confession. You've made a profession of faith. Don't go back to the old religious system, no matter what. Don't go back, no matter how much Rome persecutes us. Don't go back. If your profession was real, you can't go back. And that's what he's really telling them as we go through and look at the book of Hebrews. He became our high priest when he died on that cross, shed his blood, and sin was dealt with permanently, one time forever, for all who receive Jesus. When you read through, and we're going to start in in chapter 4, verse 14, but it kind of links chapters 3 and 4 and links them all the way back to in chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read that verse to you. It says, Therefore, referring to Jesus, our high priest, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, he was the sacrifice. He died in our place. He was the propitiation for our sins. And he had to become like us. He had to become God in the flesh, humankind. And notice he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And as you read through it, I think you'll see phrases like that where he's, it's, like, it's like if it, you or I were doubting. If you and I were doubting and somebody's coming to us or writes to us in the case of this to convince us, no, you're right. What you did was right. It's real. He is the only way. He is our high priest. What he did was sufficient. Whatever you do, don't go back. Don't doubt. Live up to what you professed to be true. So I'm going to go through just a little bit and look at some of the evidence that the writer of this presents us with. I'm going to read first the three verses, 14, 15, and 16 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy 
and may find grace to help in time of need. The writer is sharing this with the people who have confessed and professed that Jesus is the Messiah. And I want to go through these verses individually just a little bit. Starting in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We have a high priest who has gone through the heavens and he has went directly to the throne of God. And we know from the scripture that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he is our mediator. He is interceding for us. He is our defense. He is the reason we can say before God, you and I as believers are righteous and holy in God's eyes. He is that mediator. He passed through heaven. In, in the Old Testament, when they went into the, the temple or even in the tabernacle, when they went through, they went from the more open area where more priests could be, some people could be, they go into what they called the holy place and then there was this curtain. And only the high priest could go through there once a year. And he could only go there, through there and stay in there just long enough to do the religious ceremony, the sprinkling of the blood, the incense that he was called to do. And he had to get out. The symbolism of going through that veil, that curtain, to go in where the presence of God was in this Ark of the Covenant. We have a high priest who didn't go through some symbolic veil. He didn't go in where the the symbolic presence of God was. We have a high priest who went through the heavens to the throne of God and is seated at his right hand at that position of authority and power. The real thing. It says he is Jesus, the Son of God. This great high priest is a real human being, yet he's the Son of God, Son of God. And it says he had to be. He had to become like us. He had to become one of us. He's a, he had a human mother. We all know he had Mary. We all know he grew up as a child, walked the earth. We know that he shed human tears, and we know he shed human blood. He was man. He was one of us. Yet at the same time, he was the Son of God. And as you start reading the book of Hebrews, you'll see in chapter 1, 2, and 3 that the writer goes to great lengths to declare that he is the Son of God, that he is created higher than the angels. He, he, he attacks all kinds of bad theology, bad doctrine. He's the Son of the living God. And then in the end of that verse, it said, Therefore, because of these things, because he is the high priest who went directly to the Father. He is mediating right there before the throne of God for us. Because he is the Son of God and he, because he was one of us, therefore, hold firmly to your faith which you profess. Because we have this perfectly qualified priest. The qualifications of Jesus as the high priest exceed any human qualifications there could ever be. There was no one throughout history, and there never will be, even though there will be an Antichrist who is going to try to come and deceive and convince us that he's the one. This is the only high priest, Jesus. He came to earth to specifically become our high priest. That's why he came. 
And he says, because of this, hold firmly. He's speaking to the Hebrews, but I believe he could be speaking to us just the same way. Hold firmly to that faith, the confession or profession of your faith. You know, so many times and so many people make a confession of faith. They profess that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He, is, he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. We profess it, but does it happen in our heart or does it just happen up here? And it's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, you've made this profession, you have made this confession of faith. Don't let go of it, no matter what. No matter what you face, no matter what the circumstance is, there is nothing else out there that you can hang on to. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to your old way of living. Don't go back to those things that we went to instead of Christ to make us feel better about who we were, to get us out of situations in our own strength. Don't go back. When we look at the Word of God and we look at Jesus, we discover there is no nobody. I don't care who your best friend is, and I don't care how much your spouse loves you. There is nobody that wants good for you as much as God. Nobody. He died for us to provide for us. He created us in his image. We are growing into the likeness of Christ in greater and greater ways every day. He has a destiny and a purpose for every one of our lives. And some of us go through things that just cause us to question God. And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions, but to question who God is and what he's done. We're on a slippery slope. And he's telling these Jewish Hebrew people, he's telling them, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. There's no one who cares about you as much as he does. There's no one better qualified. There's no one that's equipped better. Just think, who would you want to defend you before God Almighty besides Jesus? Really? I mean, who else? I mean, some of you are pretty smart and all that, but I'll take Jesus. When I mess up, when I sin, I'm glad he's there and not you. Because when he is mediating, when he is standing there before the throne, before God, and the enemy's accusing us, all the Father sees is the blood of Jesus and his righteousness. So when he's my defense, when he's my mediator, the Father's seeing you and me through the blood of Christ. And we need to understand that. Who we are in Christ. And that's what the writer is telling these people. Hold firmly to your faith that you profess. Hold on to it. Jesus is qualified to make atonement for our sins and no one else is. And the scary thing is, if you reject Jesus as your high priest, there is no other high priest. When we reject Jesus as a high priest, we're rejecting the atonement that was given for us. When we reject Jesus as the high priest, we're really rejecting God. And there's no place else to go. Verse 15, he continues his argument as to why you need to hang on and why you can boldly have confidence. He goes on, he says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet he is without sin. It's like he's saying, I've given you some of his qualifications, but now I'm going to even expand on it. What he's already told us is more than enough. 
But he's going to continue the argument and expand on the qualifications of Jesus. He says he actually lived among us. He can sympathize with everything we've gone through or will ever go through. There's a, when you read that and, and, and put our modern definitions on some of those words, we miss some of the impact of what the writer is telling us here. When it talks about he's gone through, obviously he hasn't gone through everything you and I literally have gone through. I mean, he's never experienced a car breaking down going down the highway, right? There's all kinds of things like that we could list. That's not what's being talked about here. We're talking about a God and he says he can sympathize with us because he's gone through it all. You know, he, he came in the flesh. He experienced rejection. How many of us struggle with rejection? We've never been rejected to the point of being nailed to a cross. We've never been rejected like Jesus was rejected. We've all felt shame. No one's been, had shame dumped upon them like Jesus had dumped upon him by the people that he came to die for. He's experienced those kinds of intense things, the scorn that he faced, the lies and accusations that he faced. All these are things that we can face as human beings from people. And he's telling us he's experienced all of those things. None of us have been nailed to a cross. And he did all these things without sin. And it tells us he was tempted. Now, when you think attempted, if you're like me, you'd think about that temptation to sin. The word there is a little bit bigger than that. It means to some, put something to the test, to, to uh, prove something. Um, it has two, two parts to it, really. It can be tempted by affliction or suffering. Affliction or suffering. Many of us have been tested. We've been put to the test by affliction and suffering. Jesus certainly was. And the other aspect of that word in the original language is the temptation, that, that thing that induces us, tempts us to do evil, and it's here in our mind where the temptation comes. Jesus was tempted by the best of them. Satan took him out into the wilderness at the very beginning of his ministry, and Satan himself tempted him. Now, I've been tempted by lots of things, but I can't imagine being tempted by Satan himself. And then at the very end of his life in the garden, he was being tempted as he was sweating great drops of blood. He has been tempted by the best there was. So when it says we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, He can sympathize with our pain, our suffering. He can sympathize with the temptation. He's been there, experienced it, and yet he never, ever sinned. So the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the people, this is the high priest that you have. In Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, I read verse 17. I'm going to read it again. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You can really meditate on that, but think about what that says. He had to become like us so that he could be merciful and faithful. 
You know, God knows all things. And I can't develop this, but there's not time. But he knows all things, but he doesn't know everything because of experience. Experientially, he, he knows a lot of things that he's not experienced. For example, he knows the consequence of sin, but he's never sinned. But when Jesus came as God in the flesh, he came and he experienced all these things that God the Father knew, but not experientially. And it says Jesus had to come to be our high priest. He had to come to experience these things so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. The sympathize with our weaknesses. That phrase comes from one word in the Greek. And it means to be affected with the same feeling. But it means more than that little phrase, feel your pain. I feel your pain, brother. I feel your pain. That's, it means more than that. It means that I feel your pain because I've experienced your pain. But the meaning is expanded. It says he knows how we feel and he is compelled with a desire to help us. You know, sometimes people come to one another and they say, hey, I feel your pain, brother. And I go, good, that's good. I'm glad you feel it. Help me. They bring nothing to the problem. And I'm not blaming them. I'm not saying that the evil of them. But sometimes that's where we are. They, they don't, they're not compelled to help. Even if they could, they really, it'll cost them. But it tells us here that he, he feels our pain. He sympathizes with our weakness. He feels it. He knows what it is. And he is compelled to help us because he's our high priest. Jesus is qualified to make atonement for our sin like no other priest ever was or ever could be. And verse 16 continues on with the argument, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because of what I've told you before, and actually he's saying because of everything that's in the first three, and three chapters and into the fourth chapter, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When we have a priest, a high priest like Jesus, there should be no other appropriate response than absolute confidence. Absolute confidence. Now, I know me in my own life, I know enough to tell you that I'm always absolutely confident. But there's still that part there that doubts sometimes or questions. And it shows a weakness on my own part. We have this high priest, Jesus, who's went through the heavens, approached God. He's our mediator on our behalf. We should have absolute confidence. We should have a bold confidence and a complete security in our relationship with God. How often do you doubt your relationship with God? I hope never. But I know many of us do. Many of you have told me that you have at different times. Doubted your relationship with God. We should have such a confidence, a bold confidence in who we are in Christ, who 
who we are in Christ, who he is and who we are. And there should be no wavering in that confidence. And the writer of Hebrews is telling the Jewish people, that's where you need to be. I've explained to you who this great high priest is. He is so much better than the old high priest you guys are used to. He's so much better than those that, that went in. As a matter of fact, if you knew him on a personal level, you knew that high priest wasn't perfect. He was a man. He sinned, just like all his neighbors did. But we have this high priest who's never sinned. And he says we can approach the throne of grace. And I think Bob's been addressing this, Pastor Rob's been addressing this in adult Sunday school, a Bible class. You know, we have a God that loves us so much. And grace, it's a throne of grace now. For you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, it is not a throne of judgment where he's going to judge us on our very salvation. Oh, our works will be judged and we'll be given crowns and all of that stuff. But it's a throne of grace. The grace of God. In Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. It was touched on this morning. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, the law didn't come in and cause there to be more sin, but the law came in and all of a sudden everybody realized, wow, what I've been doing is sin. So the law brought a recognition of sin, and it says it increased. Grace abounded then all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, sin used to reign, now it says, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's grace should reign in our life through righteousness. The good news is it's not your righteousness. It's because of his righteousness. God's grace should reign in my life. He's my high priest, his grace. I can boldly approach his throne of grace because of the righteousness of Christ. Man, can you imagine if I had to go to the throne of God and approach it in my own worth? That would be scary. But when I approach it, I'm approaching it with the righteousness of Christ that's been put on us. His righteousness. Grace. Grace is the operating principle of the kingdom of God. Burn that into your brain. If you are a member of the kingdom of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a member of the kingdom of God. And grace, grace is the reigning principle in his kingdom. Pastor Bob said this morning, that doesn't mean we go out and abuse it. That doesn't mean we go out and sin more so he looks better. No, of course not. But it means we can watch in freedom and liberty because of the high priest that we have. And then it says we will receive mercy. Instead of judgment, instead of condemnation, we receive mercy. And we will find the grace that we need in those times of need. We have a high priest who knows our needs. He knows what we're going through. He's experienced all of the feelings. He can sympathize with where we're at. He knows what's happening. And in that grace, we will find mercy. In his mercy, he will give us what we need 
to get us through. Now these needs to be word need to be words and truths that impact us when we're going through those trials. It's easy for me to stand up here and say them. It's easy for me to read them out and say, Amen, it's true. But when we're in the midst of it, that's when we find out. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Come on. You have the great high priest. Boldly go with confidence to the throne of grace. Hang on to it no matter what. Live up to that confession that you've made, that profession of faith. If it's real, don't worry about it. The grace of God will be there. His mercy will be there. In spite of our flaws, in spite of our weaknesses, the mercy. God will do what needs to be done for our good and for our survival. And God's grace gives us absolute freedom. I grabbed hold of a couple words in verse 14, hold firmly, and in verse 16, approach with confidence. I've I've been there. You've probably been there. Matter of fact, some of you told me you're there, but you know, you'd say something. (laughs) With what I've done, I can't even imagine going to him. He's not going to listen anyway. And if he does listen, they're probably going to have to duck because lightning's coming. No. Boldly go with confidence to his throne of grace. And this is what he's calling the Hebrews to do, and it's really what we all need to do. And really, all of that boils down to a couple simple questions. Do you really trust Jesus? Do you really trust Jesus? Do you really believe God's word about what he says about him? And if we can't answer yes to both of those, we're in unbelief. And that's not a good place for us to be. So I just want to encourage you to read through Hebrews if you haven't been reading through it. And be encouraged. And remember, the author is, is trying to give all the evidence he possibly can to tell this religious group of people that this high priest is so much better than the old way. And you might say, well, what's the application in my own life? None of us have had a high priest go kill any animals and sprinkle blood and done all that stuff. No, we haven't. But what they were doing was they were relying on good works. They were relying on doing the right things and thinking that was going to be good enough. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing. And some people will tell us, because you're not doing the right things, you're in big trouble. You know, can you imagine the Jewish people, the religious Jews who hadn't accepted Christ, and telling those that, what do you mean you're not going to sacrifice? What do you mean you're not going to observe the Passover meal? What do you mean you're not going to do those things? You're never going to know God. We hear very similar things. We think similar thoughts. The reality is we have a high priest that's greater. And in his kingdom, grace reigns. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you that we have a high priest named Jesus. God, I thank you that someone 
knows and understands what I'm going through and how I feel better than I do. And that he's praying for me. That he is my intercessor. He is my mediator. God, I ask your forgiveness for when I doubt. Lord, I thank you that we can, as believers, as part of your kingdom, come boldly before your throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you're on our side and you're going to be working on our behalf. God, I pray you give us the eyes to see what it is you're doing all around us. Help us discern what's taking place that we wouldn't just see with our natural eyes or or feel and let our emotions control our thinking. Lord, I thank you that you are in control, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I pray for many of us here that are going through trials, tests, temptations. Father, we acknowledge that we need you to walk us through and that you are able. We declare that you are able. Pray now, Lord, as we go different directions this day and the rest of the week that you would go before us, that we would be sensitive to your leading, your guidance. God, I pray you would give each one of us many opportunities this week to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to to speak words of hope and encouragement, to to demonstrate love to other people. God, we pray that we would be able to walk with a sense of peace that could spread in a world that's in turmoil. Pray your protection over us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.